Oops. Self-existence of God. Uh, Spurgeon said this 200 years ago or whatever, 200, 100, whatever that is. In 1855, (laughs) Charles Spurgeon opened his um, sermon on a Sunday morning with this. He said, quote, The highest science, this is on the slide too, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Whew. Nothing will so enlarge it as and magnify the soul. I just like how he adds it. As a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. Jay Packer says this. Another slide. Sorry, Abe's going to work on it tonight. Uh, he's going to be working tonight. Jay Packer says in uh, his book, Knowing God, What were we made for? To know God. What aims should we set ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. John 17.3 says, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, that they may know thee. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He continues, What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else, the knowledge of God. He goes on in the same book. I'm quote heavy tonight, just heads up, but they're just awesome. He goes, Packer says, we have been brought to the point, he said this, I don't know how many decades ago now. I think this is as true as it was then. We have been brought to the point where we both, uh, where we both can and must get our life's priorities straight. From current Christian publications, you might think that the most vital issue for any real or would-be Christian in the world today is church union or social witness or dialogue with other Christians and other faiths or refuting this or that ism or developing a Christian philosophy and culture or what have you. But our line of study of God makes the present-day concentration on these things look like a gigantic conspiracy of misdirection. Of course, it is not that... The issues themselves are real and must be dealt with in their place, but it is tragic that in paying attention to them, so many in our day seem to have been distracted from what it was, is, and always will be the true priority for every human being, that is, learning to know God in Christ. In other words, the knowledge of God ought to be our number one priority in life. Or you could even say, the knowledge of God gets to be our number one priority in life. I think even simply reflecting upon 
uh, when we ask ourselves and think about our purpose. I mean, how often you guys think about, you know, you're studying this and that to get this and that degree, to do whatever job. What is the purpose of it all? Man, I think gets lost in our day-to-day all the time. What is our purpose? What is our number one priority? Knowledge of God. And so knowing God, simply put, is our goal for this series that we're going to be doing. Um, We're going to be considering these different things. We do this by knowing things about God, things that he has chosen to reveal, mind you. As you watch even a video like that, he, you know, they represent God as a, you know, shining whatever, you know, pulsating thing. But God has actually chosen to say things, to reveal things about himself. It's the fundamental reason why claiming to know X, Y, or Z about God is not pompous. It'd be incredibly arrogant to say, I know all these right things about God, but the Buddhist is wrong. If, in fact, God hadn't chosen to just say so. As it is, since he has chosen to reveal things about himself, it's arrogant, pompous to deny them. It's a height of pride to say that which God Uh, to say God hasn't made something clear that which he has. So we do need to know things about him. We want to ask him, uh, this is crucial, uh, want to do this now, continually, want to ask him to grant us zeal about things that we know about him. uh, Packer says elsewhere, this is his famous phrase from that book, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Right, that the book that he's famous for most is knowing God. It's not just knowing things about him, uh, but we do need to know things about him and pray for a heart that would love those things. So we're going to be considering a bunch of different attributes, such as God's love, what is God's love, God's wrath, uh, God's holiness, God's sovereignty, God's omnipresence, uh, several others. But tonight uh, we are doing uh, God's self-existence. Half of it, honestly, um, as you already know, is more introduction. Half of tonight's time is intro to this series, to the attributes of God, which I'm already doing. And the other half is his self-existence. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on his self-existence, but we're going to consider within that the nature of his self-existence, the nature of believing, that I'll do in a second here, and some practical ramifications of believing. So we're going to consider self-existence, consider the nature of belief, the nature of believing things about God. What is that all about? To say you believe. And then some practical ramifications. So I do want to set the tone. Um, here's my tone-setting statement for tonight's topic, which, by the way, um, I maybe should say this. Some of these, I think, I hope, are going to be more expositional, like we might have more typically in a Sunday morning at church, where we consider primarily one text, Um, Tonight is not that way. Some of them won't be that way. I don't really know. (laughs) Many of them may not be, and that's okay. There's there's room for that. We'll be spending a lot more of our time um, probably in a lot more of a topical way on this. So tonight's uh, topic, here's my connection. Here's my statement. Belief in God's existence is of unceasing practical importance. Belief in God's existence is of unceasing practical importance. Importance. It bears on your life immensely. And I think, for the most part, we don't tend to get that. Modern people think such things 
like believing in God or not, are a matter of intellectual interest. Maybe really interesting, but they're something that academics do or Christian philosophers that put videos like that together or whatever, they can deal with that. Or they're for Christians with too much time in their hands and too many debates queued up on their YouTube playlist, right? You're just really interested in that stuff and it's fun and I like to debate it. But beyond that, you know, I got to make a living, right, or whatever. It's not that practical. It is practical. It's a mistake to think that. Right belief in God affects your life all the time. The first reason is because it's not whether you have beliefs about God, but which ones. <laughs> Maybe you think that's stupidly obvious as to be unhelpful. I don't experience it that way. It's not a question of whether you believe things about God. It's what you believe. You are believing a number of things about God. In fact, every attribute we'll, we'll touch on, you have current beliefs about it, whether you're aware of it or not, and you're acting them out. We'll hit those as we go through them. Everyone believes something about God. And here's what I mean by getting practical. When I say belief or believe, I mean the real belief that is actually operational in your life and heart. The real belief that's going on and controlling you deep down. So you might say, I believe in God, I'm a Christian. Some of you may have heard me say, I share this with people all the time because the stat continues to just, I don't know, strange. You know the percentage of, of uh, SDSU incoming freshmen, at least as of a year and a half or two ago, the percentage of incoming freshmen that say they're Christian? Anyone want to guess that hasn't heard me give the answer before? Anyone guess that hasn't heard me give the answer? How, what do you think is the percentage that say, I am a Christian? Just that. Catholic, Protestant, whatever. Anybody? Guess. Somebody guess. 40? 40? 50. 50? Anybody else? Thank you. So the stats we did, it's 90 plus percent. A couple of years, it was 95 of people that put on a form, and we had like upwards of 1,000 or more people of the incoming, pretty good sample. I wouldn't say it's like a perfectly scientific uh, poll, but it is pretty good. It's pretty random. 90% say they're Christian. So 90%, let's just say, of incoming freshmen say, I am a Christian. I believe in God. Probably more would say that first one. I believe in God. Probably higher. So... You might say that. You might say, I'm a Christian, but what you actually believe deep down may be, perhaps often is, quite a different thing, right? So this classic uh, story, I didn't really get this straight in my head well enough to make this as helpful as it might be, but a guy in a uh, unicycle going across a canyon on a tightrope, he keeps going back into the crowd that has gathered, and they keep, he keeps asking, do you think I can do it again? And they say, yes. Do you think I can do it without sitting down? And they say, yes, we, we believe, right? He gets a chair or whatever on his shoulders. Do you think I can do it with 20 pounds on each shoulder? We believe you can do it. Do you think, do you believe I can do it on, with someone on my shoulders? Yes, we do. We believe. We believe you can do it. They've seen him do it a bunch of times. We believe. Okay, volunteers, he says. And everyone's quiet, right? Like everyone's actual belief when it really came down to the wire might not have been so strong in his, they just, yeah, they wanted to see him do it. Do they really believe he can? They have full confidence, right? What is really deep down. So things like Titus 1.16, this is really clear in the scriptures. Um, Adam read from around here. Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They profess it, of course, to know him. Not even just that he exists, as baseline as that is, but they profess to know him, but actually don't. <laughs> they deny him by their works. 
So there's a fundamental difference between what you say you believe and what you actually believe. And this is really crucial to look into the mirror of your own soul when considering a statement like that, as opposed to philosophically or whatever. What you say you believe and what you actually believe may be different things. The difference between what our lips say and what our hearts and minds actually hold is sometimes very clearly revealed. So some examples, in shame, we feel the awful reality of our sin, that we actually preferred one thing while we say we prefer another, right? Shame is the undeniable realization of, oh, I didn't. I didn't believe what I said I believed. Cowardice would be another. Believing and professing to be brave, but running from fear reveals in sharp focus what we were actually believing. What was the genuine belief deep down? And when maybe some of you can think of cowardly moments you've had, it's undeniable, you know, an experience of cowardice. This connection between belief and action is crucial to see. And I would add to hope for integrity to confess. To hope for integrity to confess when those two things don't line up in our lives. Because they don't. I would suggest a lot. Probably they should a lot more than you realize. And that sucks to confess. <laughs> Confession actually really is hard, difficult thing. Someone has said, I don't remember whom, ideas have consequences. Perhaps heard that phrase before. It's a famous book from a few decades ago. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas. Someone else has added bad ideas have victims or perpetrators. In other words, what you believe, what you actually believe, dictates what you do and how you act. And this is such a simple principle as, again, I think to be really unfortunately overlooked in our lives, that what we really believe is revealing, or what we do, excuse me, is revealing what we really actually believe deep down. And again, it can be a very painful experience. We tend not to want to experience it. So here are some examples, some further examples, really, of this kind of thing happening. This is all sort of introductory about the nature of, right, we're talking about what do we believe about God and what, what um, ramifications that has for our living and for our loving of one another, for our loving of God, what does that do to us? So here's some examples of how it plays out in our lives. If you are convinced that in order for the rain to fall, that you must sacrifice your newborn to Moloch, then into the flame, into the fire she goes. Historically, real thing. We want blessings from Moloch for our crops or for whatever, so they would sacrifice their children. If you ever seen the pictures, I believe this is Moloch, of the big giant uh, head of a bull and his arms are outstretched, this big metal thing, and he was heated up and they would sacrifice their children. One of the most you know, disgusting things to imagine. If you believe your life is better without the child growing inside, then likewise into the fire she goes. The belief operational inside the soul will dictate what you choose to do. If you believe your life will be genuinely better. If you believe that if only you could get married then you'd be happier and loving and content. Then your current discontentment and selfishness is merely an affliction, right? So you're not married, you really want to be. You see lovebirds getting engaged right and left and you feel discontentment or envy or bitterness or whatever. 
And if you believe that that marriage is what will do the trick, then the discontentment and the subsequent selfishness of your life is an affliction to you. Poor you, right? You feel very bad for yourself. Rather than sinful in your responsibility. The Bible says be content. And so you just repent of that. Beliefs matter. They matter, and I would argue they dictate everything about us. And the most important beliefs we have are what we believe about God. A.W. Tozer, I'm reading a couple of different Tozer books as I think about the attributes of God, and they've been really good. Uh, He's an old theologian. He says this, What comes into our minds, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And again, it could be worth repeating that it's not whether you have things that come into your mind when you think about God. There are things. And it's the most important thing. So here's a couple more examples. <clears throat> I quote, quote unquote, I fully trust God is shown to be false when we freak out and give into anxiety. There's a belief underneath shown to be false, at least some false, uh, that says you fully trust God and then you're living in anxiety means you don't fully trust God. And again, can repent of that, forgive, forgiveness, but strive to trust. Uh, here's a one uh, from more pop, well, pop culture, uh, extremely relevant modern-day cultural uh, artifact. Um, quote, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. You heard, ever heard, read that? Anybody, not to embarrass anybody or whatever, but Uh, Anybody not heard that? Curious, yeah? Hardly anybody? Or something extremely similar to it? Interesting, yeah. Hmm. Not surprising. I am a woman trapped in a man's body. That's a very common thing, the principle of that statement, or I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. Uh, Where did that belief come from? Where did a statement come from? Where did that come from that you could say something in our culture right now and have that be... In many, many quarters, very acceptable and, um, you know, uh, you get congratulations and whatever, lots of things that can happen. But certainly you don't get these kind of looks in our culture. Like, what? You, don't, you won't get that very often in our culture, at least in most places. How did that come to be? Well, you can say a lot, but it comes from an atheistic view of reality that believes there is no transcendent or external truth about you that is more authoritative than what you think or feel inside. Listen to that one more time. It's crucial. Well, it's crucial for that statement anyway. It comes from a view of reality, atheistic view of reality, that believes there's no external outside of you. There's no transcendent uh, external power or authority that, is, that has more authority than what you think or feel about yourself. That's a summary statement anyways uh, that I think is extremely helpful to explaining that. How can you be a man trapped in a woman's body? Well, there's certainly no God saying um, there's external realities that say things about you whether you feel a certain way or not. You aren't a man. You're a woman because you feel it as opposed to something that's telling you your body has relevance, for instance. Example. Uh, One more. Financial hoarder. You are incredibly selfish. You virtually never give. You don't tithe. 
you do nothing but save and nothing but plan for your own successes and own needs, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. You believe, that person believes, that this life is all there is and that it is not more blessed to give than to receive. If that belief is operational, as it is in many, many people's lives, and maybe in yours more than you, know, more than you want, that this life is all there is. <laughs> it's an extremely atheistic view of life and extremely common. It has ramifications, that belief does, um, to what you do with your finances in this life. It certainly doesn't make sense of, that belief doesn't make sense of someone giving and giving and giving. People look at them like, what? You're crazy. And then, you know, opportunity to talk about Jesus <laughs> if he's affecting you in that way. You don't think this life is all there is. You think after the grave there's something. That is significant in our culture. It's really significant. Dying is not the worst thing that can happen to you. A lot of people don't believe that. So we operate... I mentioned in my title, I stole that title from somebody, but we operate as practical atheists sometimes. Which is simply to say that much of the time, we are atheists, given my argument or assertions about the nature of how beliefs work. That the controlling belief deep down is foolish, believing as though there is no God. We operate that way. And we act in certain ways. Let's say, for instance, the, you know, you're freaking out on, in anxiety, revealing a lack of belief on God's goodness. This is a, a quote, a slide. Stephen Charnock, uh, a theologian, said this. <clears throat> it is necessary, therefore, I could add, uh, it is necessary Sorry. to depress that secret atheism which is in the heart of every man by nature. For there is a root of atheism springing up sometimes in wavering thoughts and foolish imaginations, inordinate actions and secret wishes. In other words, what the professing atheist is foolish enough to say out loud and try to defend, Christians are foolish, foolish enough to believe in our hearts. Sometimes, perhaps, much of the time. Uh, A.W. Tozer said this, quote, Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions. Let me just encourage you for just a split moment, parenthesis, to consider that you have a bunch of conventional, which is to say you just sort of received them, just kind of whatever, conventional religious notions that you have neither reflected on much nor necessarily care too much about. Those, those are, that happens a lot in our lives, I think. Consider that. And so he says, our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. And, and he ends up saying this, only after an ordeal of painful self-proving are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. And he finishes, I think it's a different slide. Charnock said, men may have atheistic hearts without atheistic heads. 
Their reasons may defend the notion, or reason, I should say reason. Their reason may defend the notion of a deity while their hearts are empty of affection to the deity. So, it's really practical. It affects us. Our beliefs do all the time. And I have a great concern that we have a great deal of practical atheism going on. And really all we're asking out that question uh, at that moment is, what do you believe about God? What do you actually believe about God? At the end of the day, the atheist isn't really the person who doesn't believe in God. They're believing wrong things about God. <laughs> I took this out, but Wilson once said, the atheists, this message isn't really about atheists per se, as you can tell, but atheists, the atheist has two, two beliefs. Um, God does not exist, and I'm very angry at him. <laughs> or two uh, pillars or whatever it is. God doesn't exist, and I'm very angry at him. Which is very, very common. It's a very strange thing to be extremely angry at somebody who isn't there. So, the rest of our time, we are going to touch base on God's self-existence and consider and hope that this is helpful. Um, Some biblical data. We're going to only spend a few minutes on this. Some biblical data on the nature of God's self-existence. That video is really helpful as an aid, supplement to what I'm saying here, what the Bible says, that God must exist difference between contingent and necessary beings. But just listen to the biblical data talking about the self-existence of God. Um, Paul echoes for, uh, Psalm 14.1. Psalm 14.1 is the verse that says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Paul kind of takes that up and echoes it and explains that a little bit, I would sort of say. Whether he was doing that quite literally, it's clearly what's happening says in Romans 1, this is a very famous passage, Romans 1, 18, says this, through 21. For the wrath of God, is it not up there? Oh, my bad, shoot. Well, if you have your Bible open, otherwise just listen. Shoot, I forgot to put it in there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, listen, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what is happening in unrighteousness. The truth is being pushed down. It's being suppressed. And he continues in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So he gives an explanation. We're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Why does he say that? Well, the reason is what can be known about God is plain. That's why, because, why is it plain? Because God has shown it to them. God has chosen to show himself. And he continues. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God's made trees and he's made man, he's made rocks, and he has been clearly perceived in them. Therefore, he continues, concludes, they are without excuse, man. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul echoing and explaining the reason uh, it is a foolish thing to say there is no God or a foolish thing to say in one's heart that there is no God because God has shown himself. 
1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6, says this, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It is from God, the Father only, and, rather not only, and Jesus is through whom and for whom all things exist. All things have come. Colossians 1.15, he, he's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, meaning he has rights and authority. That's what we mean by firstborn. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Psalm 90, verse 2. Simply, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And lastly, maybe one of the most important verses from John 1, Gospel of John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things came through him. That's He just is. God is self-existent. He is the only self-existent being. You could other say, in other words, he is independent of all things. And he is the fountain from which all things flow, all of reality. Now, you could say, in a very important sense here, Christians are not unique in this belief. Everyone must acknowledge something that is at the root of all things. I used to struggle with this growing up, thinking we have this really specific belief, and everybody else just gets to believe normal things. I've said that before. But everyone has this. Everyone has to explain this. Philosophers some sometimes call this prime reality, the thing from which all things come. There's something, right? Uh, Aristotle made famous the phrase, the unmoved mover. Sort of similar to the video, but everything has a cause. You could say everything's moved by something, but at the root, finally, something is unmoved, just there, Right? Tozer, uh, A.W. Tozer again, I think, no, I don't have this. Um, he comments, he says this, quote, he's talking about a third century priest, Novation. Novation, Novation said, quote, God has no origin. And it is, he goes on, God has no origin, and it is precisely this concept of no origin which distinguishes that which is God from whatever is not God, that which has no origin. So everybody has this. <laughs> Even the professing atheist has something, either matter or energy, eternally existing or something, or what you might you know, attempt to call nothingness. There's something from which all things come. There's a, I may have shared this before, some of you heard it, but I love it. There's a 
illustration of a kid coming up to his dad to illustrate this point. I think he's like five, whatever. He comes and asks, Dad, Dad, he's just learning about the solar system. Dad, what is the earth held up by? It's just out there hanging on nothing. How does it not fall? <laughs> his dad thinks for a second. That's a great idea. Oh, a giant turtle holds it up, son. You just can't see it. Oh, kid runs off. That's satisfied. He's five years old. Trust dad, right? And he comes back. His kid thinks, well, oh, he gets another question. But dad comes back. Dad, what about that turtle? <laughs> What's holding that up? He's a smart kid. And his dad thinks, oh, crap. Well, another turtle, son. <laughs> you know, oh, kid, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He comes back much quicker the third time. And his dad's ready for him this time, right? But, Dad, what holds that turtle up? Dad says, it's turtles all the way down, son. <laughs> Just turtles. Leave me alone. You know, whatever. Bad dad. Uh, it doesn't work, obviously. The question, well, okay, but what, where does it actually end? It's not turtles all the way down. What's at the root, right? Everybody has that. So it's very similar to the classic question, where did God come from? This is sort of what we're talking about. God's self-existence, right? Where did he come from? Everything has an origin. Or who created God? If God created everything, who created God? And I think Christians by the bucketfuls get tripped up on this. Maybe you would feel embarrassed to acknowledge that. Uh, I used to be. I don't know. I, you know. I remember the hair on the back of my neck going up when thinking about some questions, including this one. I didn't, it seemed like a tricky question to me. I didn't know how to answer it for the longest time. Right? Hasn't modern science disproved God or something? Didn't Nietzsche prove that God was dead? Everybody knows that. Uh, you may be familiar with uh, Richard Dawkins' pithy statement. Richard Dawkins was an atheist, is an atheist. Uh, I believe he's an evolutionary uh, biologist. He's a, a famous author, best-selling author. He sold millions of this book. You guys are all in still diapers when this book came out. But uh, the, the God delusion. But he had said things like this. Everybody is an atheist. Everybody is an atheist in saying that there is a God from Ra to Shiva or Odin or whatever. Everybody's an atheist in saying there's a God in which he does not believe. So if I just ask you, do you believe in Ra or Odin is a real God? Believe everyone would say no in this room. You're an atheist. Atheist. You do not believe in the, the God Odin, right? You're an atheist with hundreds of gods, in fact. All that the atheist does, he claims, is to just take the next step and say there is just one more God to disbelieve in. Just one last one. They've all been knocked down through the centuries. Turns out there's just one more God, Yahweh, God of the Bible. How come you're holding up on that one? How come you don't believe in Odin but do believe in Yahweh? You just go, Dawkins says also, right? I just go one God further. You're an atheist with thousands of gods. I just go one little God further. It's very tempting, is it not? I don't know, maybe you don't feel so, but to say, think, he's got a point. (laughs) Internally going, crap, Uh, well, that's true. It is only one God, I'm not an atheist. I'm guessing almost everyone in this room would say there's only one God I'm not an atheist with regards to, and it's the God of the Bible. Why is there a difference? He's got a point, doesn't he? Dawkins goes just one God further. Except that he doesn't. Because Dawkins is not talking about the uncreated God. The self-existent source of all things. That's not what he's talking about. So here's a slide. This is made by my friend Mike Burrow. Imagine the dotted line. Or excuse me. Imagine the uh, square is all of 
created reality, all of contingent beings. You have to hit spacebar a few times. So everything that we know exists within that. The Heavenly Father of Mormonism, believe it or not, is actually a contingent being. The Flying Spaghetti Monster, that's what FSM is. I, I feel his presence. He's reached out to me with his noodly appendages. Right? You can't see him or taste him or hear him. or He exists everywhere. It's atheist ridicule, attempt to ridicule the God. But he's a spaghetti monster. And uh, he's real. Zeus, the flying teapot is a classic one by Bertrand Russell. He's a famous atheist. There's a flying teapot flying around the earth. We can't see it, taste it, detect it. It's invisible, but it's there and I believe in it. Disprove it. That's just like believing in God, right? The problem is those are all contingent beings. They're not the definition that we're talking about. That's not the right attributes of God, the self-existent God, which is the dotted line. He isn't like that. He is the source of all things. He's all-powerful. He's immaterial. He's necessary. So when Dawkins thinks he's knocked over that tiny little piece that I think a lot of Christians, because we don't understand God well, when I was presented with these arguments, not in a slide form answering them, it freaked me out. It really did for quite a long time. Luckily, I had a good friend along and others. That's not God. And Dawkins just is not understanding God. It's good for <laughs> the Heavenly Father and the teapot. And the, it actually works pretty good. His arguments were good against contingent beings claiming to be God, but not actual God. As William Lane Craig says, I think this is in here, when you understand the concept of God as a self-existent being, you can see that this old question, where did God come from or who made God, is a meaningless question. It is like saying, why is it that all bachelors are unmarried? Hmm. Nobody breaks his brain trying to figure out why all the bachelors are unmarried. It belongs to the very concept of a bachelor to be unmarried. Those who ask the question, where did God come from or who made God, simply show that they haven't understood the concept of God. That's really crucial. Once you understand the concept of God, or increasing so, then you can see that this question is as trivial as asking why all triangles have three corners. That's what a triangle is. So, Going to close. Three applications. You could give a bunch. I'm going to give you some time to do your own, actually. We're going to change things up a little bit, hopefully for the better, for Wednesday nights. Um, but I'm jumping ahead of myself. Um, uh, can someone grab an extra handout? I don't have a handout. I need to read the questions. Never mind. Thanks, Micah. Uh, one application, number one. Uh, there is no better title for an atheist than that of fool. And no better title for our own practical atheism in our souls. We must remind ourselves how foolish, how stupid we are to follow trains of thought and ways of living that are unbelieving or atheistic. They are foolish in part because they end in misery and do not give us God. That's why they're foolish. It's not an insult, Psalm 14.1. It's a description. It's foolish. And then furthermore, to put a sharper point on this application... So I'm saying the best title for an atheist is fool. But furthermore, for those of you who are on the same page, most of you are, I know, you're following and you're tracking with all this. When you consider your atheistic friends or your atheistic uh, uh, tempting friends or flirting with atheism, whatever, when you consider them or acquaintances, you must strive to pity them, not to self-righteously judge them. 
pity them in the best definition of the word. Not like the you know, nose in the air, poor you idiot, you know, or something like that. Genuine pity. How pitiable a, and sad a condition they are in. There is no room for self-righteousness in genuine Christian belief. So that's a call to love those who don't believe. Feel for those who don't believe. For what they are missing in the great God that we know. Two, holding in our minds, here's an application, holding in our minds this truth about God is, when done with a heart toward God, satisfying and delightful and challenging and other things. It's good to the soul. Thinking about God's self-existence. Or I should maybe even say more, it should be for you. If you don't find yourself enjoying the contemplation of God, it's very possible that you're still in your sins or in the midst of some. Because it's good. (laughs) I mean, all those quotes at the beginning, man, the Spurgeon and Packer stuff, like knowing God is our calling. So I want to encourage you that that is the, the end result of it, is glory to God and joy in knowing him. Thinking of God is the tectonic underpinnings of a right war against sin and fight for joyful obedience to God. Here's what I mean by that. Fighting against your um, greed is not only done by considering your greed and the reasons for it alone or against your lust. What is specifically going on with my lust? That's important. There's a tectonic underpinning that is first and foremost, which is thinking of God. There's too many thoughts awry in our heads and our hearts that aren't loving who God is, that gives rise to all sorts of specific sins and temptations. And lastly, three, considering and meditating on God's self-existence is necessary, a necessary practice that brings us to repentance. It gives repentance. Simply put, gives repentance. Thinking on God leads to repentance if done with Humility. Why does it give us or lead us to repentance? Because the more we consider God's reality, the harder it may be to avoid him. <laughs> it's not impossible to avoid, uh, avoid by any means, but it's difficult if you think upon him. I'll just end with Tozer quote here on that issue. Listen to this. Uh, I think this is it. Is there one more? Dang it, sorry, just listen. The human mind being created has an understandable uneasiness about the uncreated. We do not find it comfortable to allow for the presence of one who is wholly outside of the circle of our familiar knowledge. Knowledge of uncreated means. We tend to be disquieted by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being, who is responsible to no one, who is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient. We tend to be disquieted. So thinking upon God um, is meant to bring us to repentance because it makes it hard to avoid him. And again, as simple as that is, we need to think about God more, a lot more. And it's good. It's such a good gift. Um, so I want to give a few minutes, maybe two, maybe five Here's how I'm going to adjust our small group discussion times. Um, I may give just two or three minutes, kind of going long.